Okay. <laughs> Whatever we said. <laughs> Stays here, I guess. Okay. Sorry for those tape listeners. We've got to start it. We are studying Hebrews 12, 18, and I read all the way through 29, which is one extended argument that is starting with the Old Testament and Sinai and saying, I mean, this was a very fearful thing. That if they die, they even touch the mountain. And God is the fire and the smoke and all the fearful thing. And the argument is that what we've come to is far more awesome than that. And that the consequences for neglect would be that much worse. Or uh, either that or trying to do it our own way. Okay. Okay, Keith, what did you say again? I <laughs> can't remember. You're talking about one man raised from the dead that does it all. Well, you have the two contrast years. When God came down before on the mountain, he came down physically and wrote with his finger on stones. And his presence on the mountain was so amazing that a million people cowered and were fearful for their lives. And juxtaposed to that, we have Emmanuel, God with us in the incarnation, who comes and lives physically with us. And you don't see any more. You don't see all this stuff when Jesus was walking around. He was, you know, just a he, man. He didn't call down fire when they wanted him to. When he did it. But ultimately, the contrast between the mountain and God coming down and the in Jesus is the resurrection versus the mountain. Because the resurrection is greater than everything that happened on the mountain. Right. Without the resurrection, there's no proof that this man came from heaven. Right, and not only that, uh, everything in, in the old was pointing forward to this one who has come and who died and was raised again on the third day. So um, the glories of the new covenant are just uh, inexpressible, and I, I love the book of Hebrews. And would to God that you know we just would get this in our heart and, and understand how great and glorious it is and how wonderful the privileges are that we could even come to God at all. Contrasting that argument also <clears throat> is probably why it's so difficult for so many people to understand uh, the differences between the covenants in that in Mount Sinai it was tangible. Yes. You could, they could actually see it, like you said, and it was something that was fearful, so they revered it versus you know the new covenant is not tangible as tangible you don't see you can't you can't see the holy place it's in heaven faith in yeah is the evidence of things not seen and so because it's not seen we don't think it's so awesome so look, look at this list again here of the things that we've come to mount zion now it's not the physical one on earth but the heavenly mount zion can't see the city of the living god heavenly jerusalem can you see that Myriads of angels, can you see them? General Assembly of the Church of the Firstborn, let me, who are rolled in heaven. Now that means all of the people that have gone before are already saved and in heaven from all the ages. Can you see them? Right. Um, God, who cannot be seen, the judge of all, spirits of righteous men made perfect, can't see. Jesus, whom we can't see. Sprinkled blood, which we can't see. <laughs> see it to, see to it that you do not refuse him with speaking. So when it says faith is the evidence of things not seen, what what we need to realize is that this is as real, more powerful, more glorious, and we need to believe it. You know, perhaps we think, you know, if God would just come down and have a fire on a mountain today, we could go look, then we'd have more faith. But it doesn't work that way, all right? Because the people that actually had that experience mostly died in unbelief. It would be apostasy if you did. 
Yeah, we, it would. We'd be going away from what's already been done once for all. All right, let's get into the path. Oh, did you want to say something? Yes, I wanted to say one thing. And that is a lot of people don't understand holiness, much less want it. Well, because it's not taught. You know, and in the means by which we can have holiness. Yeah, yeah it's, it's positional in that it, we have it because the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, but we grow in holiness practically as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Well, let's look at some of the Old Testament background passages. Maybe I'll have some people read it. Diane, uh, um, could you read Deuteronomy 4, 10 to 14, and then Diane Bukowski, um, Exodus 20 and verse 18. So Deuteronomy 4, 10 to 14 is some of the background to what is being referenced here in the book of Hebrews. Go ahead. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you're going to, where you're going over to possess it. All right. So Moses was reminding them that everything that God did, the, the fire, the, the mount, the Ten Commandments, the, 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 the law, the commandments, all this stuff, remember what God did. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about remembering, isn't there? Right? Now, why do we have to be told to remember? Because we forget. <laughs> now, I don't know how you can forget having been in a mountain where the fire of God was and you hear his voice. But what it, but Moses doesn't mean that they forgot it ever happened. Is that they failed to continue to contemplate its significance. Because they, they, the temptations overwhelm, overwhelm the memory. Yeah, well... Now, think about, there's a new covenant version of that. Remember when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me? So the Lord's Supper is the same, it's a covenant meal of remembrance. Much like Passover was a covenant meal of remembrance. So they would know, why did they celebrate Passover? Well, so they would remember that they were slaves in Egypt and that God brought them out. So why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? So we'd remember the blood covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. So we remember what Jesus did for us. So um, we forget if we don't have a regular time for remembrance. So that was Deuteronomy 4, 10 through 14. And then Diane uh, Bukowski, uh, Exodus 20 and verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. <laughs> it scared them. <laughs> they saw all of the smoke and fire and the trumpets. All right, well, we're out of here. <laughs> Moses, you go up there. We'll see if you live. I'm not going anywhere near. <laughs> and 40 days later, they were worshiping the golden calf. Yeah, right. 40 days later, they, they said, here, this, here, this is the Baal that took you out of Egypt. 
This, this is your, this is your God. So, the sin nature really is sinful. I'm going to turn to, let's all turn to Exodus 19, 12 to 19. And I'll read that. Exodus 19, 12 to 19. <clears throat> Again, it recounts the story of the Exodus in the Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day that there was a morning, uh, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud among the mountain, loud trumpet sound, and all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and his smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet blew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him. In with thunder. So there was that, that experience that we are contemplating here in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Hebrews 12 and verse 18. So, um, I was gonna, I had a citation here from William Lane I wanted to share with you. Oh, he talks about this word, come to, alright? There's a, there's a word here that's used in the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 4 and verse 11. And it's, he says the verb is used exclusively of an approach to God. So the, the writer compares Israel's approach to God in the cultic ceremony. Remember I told you that word cultic in a technical sense is not, it means a, a religion with its own practices. Okay, when it's used in technical term. Um, in the cultic ceremony to the Christian's experience in worship. The cumulative effect from the awesome description of the tangible and threatening aspects of the scene is an indelible oppression, impression of the majestic presence of the God who is unapproachable. So knowing that and thinking about that, an awesome, holy, unapproachable God and you're going to die Think about the glorious promise that the blood of Jesus was poured out once for all so that we may approach God, that we may draw near to God. That's the most glorious thing. There's no greater promise. It, it may not seem like much because our minds are dulled by the temporal. All right? And we're thinking about how am I going to pay for my house and what's my career going to be like and how am I going to raise my family or am I going to keep my health when I get older? I mean, there's a lot of things that we think about. We all do. How can you not? You just do. But we, we can't let these things that we concern ourselves with dull or obscure that what has been given here is far greater than any of those things. Access to God, to the throne of grace, is just an unbelievable privilege. And it's a great, great, great promise that when given to us, and if we neglect it or substitute something else for it, we shall be as guilty as any of these people that are mentioned in Hebrews or warned about. So that's the the whole point here. 
Now, that one it says, for you have not come to a mountain that may be touched. Now, it, of course, they were told not to unless they died, but what it means was that was one that a person could touch if they decided to. It was right there, right? We can't go touch Mount Zion. It's not accessible to us. Can't even see it. Uh, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind. Again, those are descriptive of the incident that we just read about. And then it goes on in verse 19, And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. And uh, Elizabeth, could you look up Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27? And see, we already did that Exodus 19. Uh, um, Karen, Deuteronomy 4, 33 to 37. And then Keith, Deuteronomy 18.16. So, uh, when you get it, Elizabeth, Deuteronomy 5.23-27. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me. All the heads of your tribes and your elders, you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man. Yet he lives. Um, why then, now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all, I'm sorry, I can't read this. Verse 27. Of all flesh, who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. Go near and hear all, all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. Okay, so that was a description of, first of all, they were in awe that somebody would actually hear God and still be alive. Right? They understood God is holy and awesome, and that they're sinners. And so a sinner can't come to God and live, be smitten dead right on the spot. But they said, we, amazing thing, we, we saw and heard God and we're still alive. But we're not going to press it. Moses, you go talk to him. <laughs> we survived, we survived so far, but that's enough. We've, we've heard all we can hear, uh, and so we'll listen to Moses. He's a, he's a little easier to hear. Well, then the interesting thing was when Moses went, he, remember he came down with the glow of the glory of God? And so they had to put a veil, even over Moses. Even the mediated glory of God through Moses was too much for them to bear, much less the direct glory. Is that something? And then, and throughout the Bible, when there, where there's a theophany, a theophany is a, a theological word for a manifest appearance of God that people could see or experience. Now, a theophany should not be mistaken to be the entire essence of God. Because the Bible says no one can see God and live. But at different times, in some veiled way, God has made himself manifest on the face of the earth. And, and just a theophany, which isn't the whole essence of God. It's just a veiled part of it. But every time even a theophany happens, what happens? What do people do? Yeah, they always end up on their face. Or they fall on the ground like a dead person, like John in Revelation 1. Um, and Or like uh, even the guards in, in the presence of Jesus. And um, 
uh, or they cry out, woe is me, like Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, or Moses ended up in the cleft of the rock, right, when God passed by. And that's just a theophany. The, what we've come to is greater than that. Only thankfully we're, we, we, we're covered by the blood of Jesus, so we can go. Okay, uh, Karen, you had a passage? Deuteronomy 4, 33 to 37. 33 through 37. For many people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire, as you have heard it, and survived. Or has God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. So there's a rehearsing of the unique privileges of Israel. That they, that they, that God had brought them out of Egypt, that God had given them great promises, and there was keeping promises that He made to the patriarchs, and that they heard Him, that what a, what a great privilege. In fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy where, uh, they say, uh, what great, what, what other nation has this law? You know, what a privilege that we have the very words of God. See, because the pagans, not having this experience. And they lived in a, 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 well, paganism has been the default world religion throughout history. If, if, if you just let, you know, if you removed all the books and libraries and everything from some society and say, here, just go live how you see fit, and you just let them develop a religion, they'll become pagan. Alright? And, and pay, what paganism is, is a, the assumption that there must be some sort of god or goddess or whatever, but having no specific revelation. So all you have is nature and the things that happen in nature, and then you look at that and try to figure out the nature of God in some way or another. And so what do they think of? Well, they, they look for anomalies. For example, the pagans, uh, you know, they don't have street lights back then, right? So you can see the stars all night long. And so uh, if you're uh, seeing the stars and you can see, you look at these stars, they, they look like certain things up there. You know, that looks like a guy and it looks like a whatever. And then there's certain ones that move in different directions than the others do. And they can see that, which we know to be the planets. And they start thinking, well, this thing here is a god and this other thing. And so then they're trying to derive the nature of God from what they see in the sky. And they come up with astrology. And people still believe that today. Or they, they look at natural calamities and they, they say, okay, the gods must be mad about something. But we don't know what it is. We know it must be something. What, what should we do? Well, let's, why don't we go sacrifice our children? Somebody told me that works. <laughs> okay? And so they fish around for practices and in, of course, we know that, they're, that the pagans are also influenced by evil spirits, which are very much real. And so people that study the history of religion 
start wondering about this. Uh, Carl Jung did this. Well, here's these people isolated from one another that had no access to world history or access to the history of other peoples, and they have the same type of deities or the same ideas or the same experiences. And so Carl Jung, knowing that, seeing that, came up with this idea of the collective unconscious, that they're all hooked up together somehow in some cosmic way. Well, another experience is that another explanation is that these things are demonic and the demons are giving people the same experience. So <laughs> uh, that's what they got. And so this passage that Karin read said the, the, the Jews realized how privileged they were. There's no other people like us. No other people has the true God who's spoken true words that are infallible and has made us into a people. We have what the pagans can never have, which is specific revelation from the true creator God. So now they don't have to fish around trying to find something about God from nature, which you really can't do, but they know him because he revealed himself and he spoke words. God speaks words. Now, what a tragedy when we don't like God's words and we go back to the way the pagans did it. Yes. In essence, if they were... Whereas we look to the resurrection for the proof of the new covenant, the proof of the old covenant was taking them out of Egypt with all the sayings and plagues and bringing them out in spite of all the gods of Mm -hmm. Egypt. Mm -hmm. So they would continue to go back to the proof that happened there that their God was true and their God had spoken. And we now go back to the proof that our God has come and spoken but the resurrection is those two events that are juxtaposed. Very much so. And, and both of them were connected with the blood atonement. The coming out of Egypt, they had the blood of the Lamb and, and in the Passover. And, and we have the blood covenant as well, the new covenant in Christ's blood. So there's very much an analogy there. But, but we need to be remembering how privileged we are to have the words of God. Because if we did not have the words of God, we would be pagans. Or we would be captive to some false religion that claims to have the word of God, like the Watchtower Society or Joseph Smith. But we have the words of God. But you know what happens when you neglect the words of God? The more you neglect them, the more you become like pagans. Yes? uh, Romans chapter 1, the world is seeing what's around it, is aware of the fact that there is a God. Yes, general revelation. But just like... What always happens, it didn't save them. Because even though they knew God, they were not thankful, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and they gave themselves over to degrading pleasures. And then it gives you this list of all the things that the pagans do. So what a wonderful privilege it is to have specific revelation in words. God speaks in words. Remember the debate? I made a big deal about that. There's a reason. You know why I made a big deal about that? Because that's what they want to deny. The, the, the emerging church wants to deny that God speaks in words. Yeah, he, he speaks in feelings and impressions and icons, but not in words. <clears throat> and so when I was laying that out, I couldn't see behind me, but I was just laying out words God speaks. These are the words. Jesus said, the words that I spoke will be your judge in the last day. Remember later I asked Doug that he believed in judgment in the last day and he wouldn't say yes to it. Well, can you imagine how upset he was when I'm reading a verse that says God speaks words and those words will judge you in the last day? That is refuting everything that's important to him. And that's why he was red as a beat. 
he was just, just, it was just pounding on him. Because what we're talking about today is being denied. That the words that God speaks are knowable, they're clear, they're authoritative, they're binding, and they are what gives us our understanding of who God is. Now, if you think you can get better by, by meditating in front of an icon, you've just delved into paganism. Yes. The, uh, the words are also the arrogance of truth that infuriates the world. Yeah. Yeah, how dare you think you know something's true? Um, well, I, yesterday in the seminar, um, remember I put a slide up there um, from the Purpose Driven Church, and it says... Um, People don't believe in truth. Okay, so here's the whole problem. You do a survey and you find out that most people don't believe in truth. So now you can't give them truth. Yeah, they don't want truth, they want relief. Now, I would say, I don't care whether people believe in truth or not, or they believe in the words of God or not, they're still valid, I'm going to give them, <coughs> because God will use them. Yes. Yeah. This, I see this banner on some of these. I think it's Church of Christ that says God is still speaking. They obviously aren't meaning the Word of God. God is still speaking. Has anyone seen those banners? He's, he's on is still speaking to us. The blood of Abel still speaks through the Scripture. Yeah. No. No. They're probably referring to New Revelation, okay. or you know, um, see that, that Hebrews one one and two. God has spoken in full and final revelation. Well, then, then we're bound. See, if this is all, if we're fishing around out here for something more or something new, then I, people somehow feel liberated. Really, it's all about whether we're going to come under the authority of Scripture or not. Yes? But even as you were saying yesterday, that what, what Rick Warren is saying is people want relief. Yes. They're wanting relief from whatever. Common problems. Right. But the trouble is, is what you can't give them relief for that they really need is their burden of sin. Right. They don't so even talk about that. What they really need relief for. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll tell you what exactly what Rick Warren would say because evangelicals have talked to him about that, the ones that can get to him. He'll say, oh, I agree with you. I totally know about that. But you got to give them relief from the problems they know before they're willing to listen to you about this other problem. If you tell them about the real problem up front, they won't want to hear. So you got to do the other thing first. Now, so there's where really the essence of our disagreement. Because I'm not, I don't believe that at all. I don't have to solve everybody's life problems first. And then when I do, they're going to be, okay, now you, now you can make me a Christian. It just doesn't work that way. Because even if you did solve everybody's problem, the sin nature is such that they still reject Christ. And so we might as well just put the truth out there right up front and let God use that to save them. Yes, Diane. Has he said how far down the line he will wait until he tells people the truth? Well, I think in his church he probably say he does every Sunday but because they have these decision cards. What's the classes that he takes? So you run through these different classes. 101, 201, 301, 401. Maybe he gets 401. It's there. No, they don't, but it's not doctrine. It's making bigger commitments. At first, you, you swear to unity with the church, then you swear an oath to tithe, then you swear an oath to serve. and you, It's all about making commitments to the church. Well, there's no 501. Um, but, but, no, but I think, I think that they're assuming that a decision card has enough on it. You know, I want to believe in Jesus Christ or something like that. I'm not, you know, I, I don't know what's on them nowadays. 
but the, the, the assumption is if you just say the name Jesus Christ, then all these people know exactly what you're talking about. And they, and they, and they, not, they not only know who Jesus is, they know about his virgin birth, they know about his eternal uh, essence of uh, being God, fully, fully human and fully God, that they know about the blood atonement, that they know about the resurrection, that they know about coming judgment. They're assuming, you just assume if you, were, if you say Jesus, that everybody knows that. But why would you assume that in today's culture when people in churches don't even know that? Okay? So if somebody says, yeah, I want to believe in Jesus, they haven't given enough information to even know who he is that they're believing in. So it's a it's sort of descriptive content. Uh, now, I'm sure that there are insiders who know all these things probably that are, you know, uh, in, in some of these movements, but um, well, you know what I believe. I believe that whatever is the truth, that I'll be preached right out front to everybody. Just put it out there. <laughs> Let them get mad. Just tell them the truth right up front. And if they get converted, they'll be very, very happy. And if they're not, they'll be very, very mad. <laughs> well, that's what I heard when I was in Bible college. You're either going to get mad or you're going to get glad. <laughs> so you better decide right now because we're going to preach you the gospel and nothing else. <laughs> so would to God that there were more Bible colleges doing that nowadays. Okay, Keith, you had a verse. Deuteronomy 18.16 This is according to all that you ask of the Lord, your God, and Horeb, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire, or I will die. And the next verse is really interesting. Okay. <laughs> the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. So, we have this, coming from the charismatic culture, we have this concept that if we can get the manifest presence of God, that's the pinnacle. Or in Deuteronomy, this verse itself refutes that. God says, no, what's good is that they have a mediator. In the context of the Old Covenant, the mediator was Moses that went up. And God says, it's better that I speak to you through Moses than if you come to me directly. Wow. In the New Covenant, God comes down and he sends a man, Jesus, to be a mediator. Yes. And it's always better to have a mediator. And for me to set up some service or some system, seeking the manifest presence of God is apostasy even in the Old Testament. Wow. <laughs> that was good, Keith. <laughs> you keep coming up with stuff like that, I'm going to give you a microphone. <laughs> that was good. Did everybody, can everybody hear what he said? That it was good that they have a... Yes. Uh, what's, yeah, let's all turn to it. And, and I think that was, that's worth discussing. Deuteronomy... 18, 16, and 17. It's good that you have a mediator. Yeah, you know what? There was a guy who wanted to debate me about the Toronto blessing one time. And I said, well, why, why do you have to go to Toronto to meet God? And he says, because it's a theophany. In other words, what they were claiming was that the manifest presence of God well, whoever believed that. Uh, well, yeah, the idea was the manifest presence of God showed up at Toronto, and if that's where it is, then you're not going to see somewhere else. You've got to fly to Toronto to get the presence of God. I can't believe, imagine anybody would make that claim, but they did. So, uh, so they got their own theophany. Well, let's read the passage. Deuteronomy 18, 16. This is the one that Keith read. 
This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Oreb by the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. Well, let me read verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command. And who is that? That's Jesus. All right, we'll keep reading. As long as we're on a roll here. And then verse 19 says, And it, and it shall, come, uh, shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Um, yeah, so there it is right there. So we'll either listen to Jesus, or it'll be required of us. There's only one mediator. So, so Moses said they've spoken well, or God said they've spoken well. They need a mediator. And so they got Moses. And then, and then God promised that in the future, they would raise up a greater prophet than even Moses, and that when he comes, we have to listen to him. So, Keith, you're absolutely right. Now that Jesus came, we have our mediator, and it's a bad thing to not want one. Chase the manifest presence of God directly is a sinful apostasy. Yes, I agree. That's what I wrote an article about that, the Tommy Tenney thing. You know, they, they're refusing to go through the mediator, and it's a sin to do that. And you build, and you, now let's think about why. Okay, why? Well, in this case, they were going to die. They couldn't come in God's presence. But the other thing is, if they don't have God's ordained mediator, they'll listen to the diviners. They'll 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 go by their own experiences, and they'll come up with false ideas about who God is. <laughs> Calling the blood of Jesus Christ not sufficient, worthless, because I want to come directly. I mean, I'm, yeah. It's, like a black it's very much presumptuous. It would be like somebody in the Old Covenant deciding, why should I wait for a whole year for the high priest to go into that holiest place? This isn't fair. I want to meet God myself. I know he's in there. I'm going. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. We'll see ya. <laughs> We won't, we won't be seeing you outside here in the camp again. All right, yes, Kathy. The thing is, is that the second mediator said that he was coming back. Moses said he isn't. Moses is not coming back. Jesus is coming back. That's what I mean. Yeah, right. Jesus is coming back again for us. So, uh, very good passage of Deuteronomy 18. And it's in the context of warning, warning about divination. All right? And so, let's just unpack that a little bit. What is this wanting to get the direct words of God from himself? They think it's come from God. They're saying, okay, we're not going to have a mediator. We want to get the words ourselves. What is from God? He said he'll send them a deluding influence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. God will send a deluding influence. So they said, we're going to get the words from God. We don't want this mediator. And what it was called when they did that in Deuteronomy is divination. And that puts them right back in the camp with the pagans who are fishing around trying to get something from God to figure out who he is through their own devices, through through whatever. Somebody said, well, I know how to hear from God. You cut up an animal and you look at the liver and whatever the colors on the liver, that tells you something from God. That's one kind of divination they, they literally practice. Another thing they did was take a handful of arrows, fling them up in the air, and then they'd come and stick in the ground. And they'd examine, and then the king, for example, would say, this one's pointing this way, that's how we attack our enemy. They, they got that through divination. Um, they would do other such things. So it's an either or. Either we're willing to submit 
to God's chosen mediator, which in the Old Testament was Moses, and which in the New Covenant is Jesus, or any other thing is some version of divination. And it's not that you maybe will be deceived. It is that you will be deceived. Why? Because these demons are good at what they do. Okay, yes. Several passages of Scripture will say that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. Yep. They want the tangible. They're not willing to live by faith. Right. An evil and adulterous generation seeks signs. Ryan. This whole issue of either or, I was, I'm preparing, I'm doing my last sermon in, in Galatians next week, and funny thing is, I was thinking about the debate that you had with this pageant. Yes. Um, oh, I did, oh, my, you mean my binary reductionism? <laughs> Do you remember he said, I love, I love Paul? Do you remember he said that? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm preparing to kind of sum up Galatians, and everything in Galatians is either or. Either or. Either you, you take circumcision or you take Christ. Either you're part of the New Jerusalem or you're part of the earthly Jerusalem. Either you're son of Abraham or you're not. It's either or, either. That's the whole book of Galatians. Yes. Paul draws this line, either or, either or. So how did this guy love Paul? Uh, no. You know, but you, but you know... Uh, actually, Eric, uh, this, that I went over to the seminary with to talk to the dean about the type of theology that we were disputing, um, he said that when Doug spoke to the seminary for their kind of their opening address this last year, he was speaking, he was speaking about binary reductionism again. Well, but so, but why does he call it that? And what's, what's the problem? Well, they don't like anybody drawing lines and making boundaries. That's I know, but they don't like that. And so that's why you try to get rid of words, because if you meditate in front of an icon, that icon isn't saying, no, you can't go here. Um, and so Jesus came and he drew lines. Did he not? Either or. Either you come to God. Exactly. Either come to God through the narrow gate or you will go to hell. Either or. And he didn't like the analogy of paths either, which is actually in the Bible. Remember he said that? He said, I, I think the pathway analogy is faulty. Oh, yeah, I was using that on my PowerPoint. And Jesus used it. He goes, he doesn't like the analogy. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's what you end up with, a theology of personal preference. So as we're, I, I like this discussion because it brings us back to what it says in Hebrews right here. All right, let's go. Let's go. Some of you weren't here when we started in Hebrews one four years ago. <laughs> so let's go back and reset the stage. Hebrews one, one. <laughs> no, we're not gonna start over. Yeah, I like it so much. I decided to start over again. The same time, I already got notes on the first. All right, here. We're talking about God chooses a mediator rather than let people fish around trying to get their own words from God. Alright? And come however they see fit. And the mediator was Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New. Very clear in Deuteronomy 18. Well, here's what it says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers. Now right there, it affirms something we're talking about. Specific revelation. The fathers didn't fish around in nature and come up with a religion. They didn't lay on their back in the pasture and look at the stars and dream up something about God. God actually appeared to them and spoke to them. That's how they knew his words. God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so after he spoke, 
in words, authoritative words to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, okay, through the old covenant spokespersons, in these last days, has spoken. Now, the tense in the Greek means that this is a finished thing. All right? Has spoken in full and final revelation. The perfect tense means something that happened and its effects continue on. So these, these words are still the words of God to us. Has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom we made the world. So the Son is the Creator, and the Creator God himself came as born of a virgin and spoke words to us. These are the very words of God. They reveal to us who God is, what his nature is, what his will is, what his moral will is, what his plan of salvation Everything that pertains to life and godliness has been spoken once for all. All right? Now, we either are willing to submit to that, or we have thrown open the gates to anything and everything. There is no limit once you go past this limit. There's no boundaries. Remember the debate? I kept going back to the thing of boundaries over and over again. And I think he admitted there were some boundaries, but he wouldn't couldn't figure out where any of them were. It was how, how did you guys read that? I couldn't get any clear statement that there are any boundaries. But see, once you depart from the words of God spoken through His ordained spokesperson, and you're going to try to directly go to God, you've just thrown out the boundaries, and you put yourself in a place because God didn't choose you to be His revelator. You're going to get deceived. There's deceitful spirits, angels of light, that go about trying to get people to think they're from God. Well, yes. His definition of boundaries is historical Christianity with all the paradoxes. So it, oh, yeah, that's right. Contradictions. Yeah, well, all the contradictions, but they're the boundaries, but they say both things. So. so there are none. A contradiction can't serve as a boundary because it's a meaningless thing. Remember, yeah, he got kind of upset. He had that slide go back up there. Yeah, they're all, these are contradictions. That's a good thing. Yeah, the Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and they're both boundaries. Yeah, there are no boundaries. Well, okay, so I think there's a, a good understanding now that God chose to speak through His people, to His people, through His chosen mediator, and that those words are inerrant, authoritative, God's words, and that the latest person He spoke to us through was Jesus Christ. And we're not going to have any more new authoritative words from God until Jesus returns and he can tell us whatever else he wants to tell us then. Are we willing to accept that? All right. That's good. That will keep us out of hell. (laughs) God bless you, and we'll see you upstairs at 1030.